What you're reading this morning is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Colossians 1, 20 through 23. The Bible says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you again asking your blessing upon the preaching of the word, upon the offering. Lord, may the offering be sufficient to the needs of your church. Lord, may your word penetrate our hearts, Lord. We don't, we don't want to be doers or hearers of the word only, Lord. We want to be doers of the word. We want to hear your word. We want it to change our lives. We want to be a reflection of the word that is given to us, Lord. We ask for you to do work in our hearts, Lord. May your Holy Spirit be among us, teaching us, admonishing us, Lord. If there's sin in our lives, Lord, draw it out. I'm so sick of holding on to these sins. I'm so sick of not being proactive in attacking my sins, Lord. We cannot dabble in that for which Christ died. We have been reconciled to God through Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would change us, Lord. As Evan Roberts prayed at the start of the revival in Wales, Lord, bend us. That was his prayer, Lord, bend us. And so I ask you this morning, Lord, bend us. You're the potter, we're the clay. Do a work among us. In Christ's name, for Christ's sake, amen. You may be seated. Colossians 1, continuing our journey through Colossians. In this portion of Scripture, Paul is meditating on the glory of Christ, as we've seen the last couple of weeks. In verses 12 through 17, he focuses on the glory of Christ in his divine person. He is the source of our redemption, verse 14. He is the image of of the invisible God, or God manifest in the flesh, verse 15. He is the creator of all things, verse 16, and the sustainer of all things, verse 17. In verses 18 and 19, we saw last week the glory of Christ in his church. Verse 18, he is the head of the church. Also in verse 18, he is preeminent in the affairs of the church. In verse 19, all fullness for the church dwells in Christ. How does all fullness for the church dwell in Christ? Well, let me give you a couple of examples from Scripture. We kind of mentioned these last week briefly. He's our captain, Hebrews 2.10. The term captain refers to his position as founder or forerunner of our salvation. He leads us where he has already been. Death, resurrection, glorification. 
He's our cornerstone, 1 Peter 2.6. The cornerstone or foundation stone is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry building or foundation. All other stones are set in reference to this stone, determining the position of the entire structure. He's our foundation, 1 Corinthians 3.11. Anything built on the sand will crumble. A foundation strengthens the building. Christ is the basis of our salvation. Our works are impure. Our works are faulty. Our works are shoddy craftsmanship. But resting on his perfect finished work gives our salvation a strong foundation against all that will come before it. Because it's not our works that support the structure. It's the foundation of Christ. He is our substitute, Isaiah 53, 5. He put himself in our place under the wrath of God against our sin. He's our propitiation, 1 John 4, 10. He's a, a satisfactory offering. That's what propitiation means. It means a satisfactory payment. He was a satisfactory payment for our sins. He took away the wrath of God from us and removed it forever. I said, I think I said it on Wednesday night, we often use the term, uh, when we talk about salvation, we use the term pardon. It's not very accurate, though, because in a pardon, one stipulation of a pardon is you're supposed to acknowledge your guilt to receive a pardon. But Christ went farther. He declared us not guilty in God's courtroom by declaring himself to be guilty for us. 1 John 1, 7, he's our cleansing. He cleansed us perfectly and thoroughly from our sins. No stain of sin remains on a child of God. We, we talked about that last week, didn't we? Reformation Sunday. What does the Roman Catholic Church teach? You go to purgatory because you are, I'm, I'm, I'm not making this up, I'm quoting from their catechism, you are imperfectly purified by Christ. And you still need cleansing after death. Listen, Christ is our purification. He does nothing imperfectly. He is the perfect Son of God. There is no stain of sin if you're saved. Hebrews 9.11, he is our high priest, the one who stands in the presence of God on our behalf. The Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25, he's our advocate, 1 John 2. One, Christ is our attorney in heaven, so to speak, speaking on our behalf to God the Father. So having looked at the glory of Christ in his person and his position, Paul now goes into the glory of Christ in his work. Let's begin at verse 20 of our text, verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross to by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. The word and, connecting this thought with the last one, right? So, and or because. So, God the Father determined that in Christ, all fullness would dwell for the church and or because. Why? Why does all fullness for the church dwell in Christ? Because he made peace with the blood of his cross. He reconciled all things to himself. That's why all that we need comes from Christ, because the work of Christ is his work. It's not our work. We don't contribute. He didn't make the down payment and we finished it. 
We don't mix our works and his works together. I, 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 I cringe when I hear preachers get up and say, God has done all he can for your salvation, and now you must do something. Baloney. That's not a technical term or a theological term. That's just baloney. No. The work is all Christ's. You say, well, I, I came to Christ because he allowed you to. Because he called you to. He said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. You didn't follow Christ because you were really good and smart and capable. I didn't either. The work is all Christ's. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Since the fall, mankind has been at enmity with God. We were rebels against God, living contrary to his law. We could not fulfill the terms of peace with God because we did by nature the things that displeased him. Understand that. We were not good people who did bad things. We were corrupt to our core, depraved in our very nature. Nothing that comes from us is holy apart from God. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. I don't care. They call them the terrible twos for a reason. They have a sin nature. There are people out there who believe that we, 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 we don't. They believe that we don't. We're born in innocence until we choose to sin. Listen, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It flows from who we are. Therefore, we can never make ourselves right with God because all that flows from us is depraved and wicked and contrary to God's law. Romans 8 verse 8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot. How does that work for a, a church that teaches works salvation? It doesn't. It you know why they teach work salvation? You, you, you want to know the, the underlying reason why all these false religions teach a work? Because that's what they all have in common. They all have that one common trait. They believe we have to mix our works with Christ to be righteous. I don't care if it's Roman Catholic, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, Church of Christ. Just go down the list. I don't care what church it is. They all have one thing in common. You know what it is? There's no Holy Spirit. Therefore, there's no new nature. Therefore, to keep people faithful to their religion, they have to teach them that if they stop working for their salvation, they'll die and go to hell. It's fear-mongering. It's control-oriented. It's, we have to keep you on this hamster wheel, as I call it, constantly turning, 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 trying to make yourself right with God, never quite knowing if you're doing it or not. Then in some churches, once you die, your family has to light candles and say prayers for you because you're still not certain that you're in heaven. But see, what we have in our salvation is the Holy Spirit. So how can you say that we're saved without anything that we do. Aren't you worried people are just going to claim to be saved and go off and live for themselves? I'm not. Because if they're truly saved, they won't. Because there's a new nature. There's a new man inside their heart. A man who is inclined to righteousness. 
I'm not going to spend 40 hours a week chasing you around trying to get you to be holy. I'm going to teach you the word of God. I'm going to give you principles for being holy. But listen, if you're a born again Christian, there's a new person, the Holy Spirit living inside you. If he doesn't make you righteous, I'm not going to make you righteous. Let's be honest about that. Those who are in the flesh, Romans 8, 8, cannot please God. Cannot please God. Our works, even if moral and good, cannot bring peace with God. Because our righteousness is like filthy rags. You know why? And I'm jumping around here. Because whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So even if I keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, which I can't, if I don't do it out of a heart of faith in God, it's still sin. If I give all of my money to the church, but it's not out of faith in God and love for God, it's sin. It's sin. Our works apart from faith, are sin. Therefore, our works could never justify us because our works come from the heart and our heart is deceitful and depraved and dark and wicked by nature. We were dead spiritually, the Bible says, Ephesians 2.1. You hath he quickened, you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. I was dead. In our natural state, man has no spiritual life. Apart from salvation, spiritually, we're dead corpses. We can look alive. We can have outward religious expression, but it's not real life. You know a dead body can be dressed up to look like it's alive? I think I mentioned before, I used to work in a hospital where I, we, we dealt with the morgue. We put people in uh, the freezers. We took them out and gave them to the funeral companies. And in and, and most cases, depending on how they died, but most cases, when you pull them out of the freezer, they look like they're sleeping. They don't look any different. This is before embalming and all that. They're just, they're just dead. I'll bet you, I didn't do this, but I'll bet you, if I took off the hospital gown and put on regular clothes and took them upstairs and laid them into a bed in a regular room, people walking down the hallway wouldn't know the difference between that person and a sleeping person. They would look alive. I can make them look alive, but inside there's no life. They're dead. So we can dress ourselves up in our nice suits and our big Bibles under our arms and we can march to church every Sunday. We can go back Sunday night. We can go back Wednesday night. We can, we, we can even go out to outreach and we can have the appearance of life. When inside, we're dead. We're dead. Because of our nature. The terms of peace were a blood sacrifice. A perfect blood sacrifice. Perfect obedience to God's law. And a substitute to suffer for our sins. God fulfilled the terms of the cross when he crushed the head of the serpent. Once again, you and I could never fulfill the terms that God had laid out. You and I could never be a perfect blood sacrifice because we're tainted with the sin nature. That's why Christ was virgin born. Don't ever let go of the virgin birth of Christ. Right? 
We know the curse passes to us through the Father. I know that because it wasn't Adam that sinned first. It was Eve that sinned first. But by Adam, by one man, sin came into the world. Jesus Christ being born of a virgin, he bypasses the curse of Adam, and he is born with a completely human but completely sinless nature. He could be the perfect blood sacrifice. We cannot keep the law perfectly. I don't know if you are in denial about this, but I'm not. Lock yourself in a room for 24 hours and try not to sin. <laughs> it's just my outward stimulus that makes me sin. No, it's your depraved heart. It's that old nature. I lock myself in a room for 24 hours by myself with nothing else in the room but walls and carpet. I promise you, I'll sin. I'll sin. And we need a substitute. Someone to bear the guilt of our sins. See, if I bear the punishment for my sin, it's permanent. You know why? Because I'm a sinner. So if I were to die for my sins, death has hold of me, doesn't it? And it's not letting go. That means eternity in hell. But Christ, he didn't sin. Not once. Perfectly obeyed the Father. The wages of sin is what? Death. Which means when Jesus died physically, death had no claim to hold him because he never sinned. Therefore, he could rise from the dead. Therefore, he could be my substitute, suffer in my place, die for the sins I committed, and then rise from the dead because that, that, that death had no power over him. If I die for my sins, it's keeping me. Not him. Not Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, The sting of death is sin. In Hebrews 9, 26, we're told that Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle goes on to say that the strength of sin is the law. So the sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. Christ took away the strength of sin by fulfilling the law. See, the strength of sin is, is, is its condemnation of us as sinners. We have violated God's law. So the strength of sin is the law. It gives strength to sin. It gives power to sin because we have violated the law of God. Jesus comes along and he lives perfectly the law of God. Perfect obedience. Sinless obedience to God. And then he gives us his righteousness. And so sin has no strength against us anymore. It has no claim to us anymore. The strength of sin was the law. And the sting of death is... I have it backwards. Let me look at my notes. The sting of death is sin. But our sin was taken upon Christ. Therefore, death has no sting. The strength that sin has is the law, but Christ fulfilled it and gave us his righteousness. Therefore, it lost all power against us. Do you know why you're free from the power of sin when you get saved? You know why you're free from the, the, the powers that used to control you? I don't care what it was. If it was drugs or, or alcohol or sex or anything else you were addicted to, right? And you get saved and you find that I'm no longer bound to these sins anymore. Do you know why? Because the strength of sin was the law. But now we have perfect righteousness before God. So sin has no power anymore unless we give it power. Unless we yield ourselves to it. It has no claim to us. We can walk now, church, in perfect obedience, perfect victory. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. Right? We're still going to struggle with sin. But our obedience will be to Christ, not to sin. The law loses its power to condemn. Therefore, death loses its sting. Because death becomes not condemnation 
but glorification. We pass from death into the presence of God. Isn't that great? What Christ did for us is he turned the means of our condemnation into the means of our salvation. Death came into this world as punishment for sin. And now it's a portal into eternal glory. That's the work of Christ. We know that the system of sacrifice laid out in the Old Testament was only a shadow of that which was to come. Those sacrifices, Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, could never take away sin. Christ removed the sting of death, the strength of sin, and fulfilled the terms of peace demanded by God's justice. In this way, he made peace through the blood of his cross. Continue verse 20. By him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. By Christ to reconcile all things. This brings to mind 2 Corinthians 15, 18 through 19. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. By the way, that word impute means to count. When it says he was not imputing their sins, he was not counting our sins against us. You know why? Because he counted them to Jesus Christ. Yeah. Every sin you or I have ever committed, ever will commit, Jesus paid for as if he did those sins himself. Though he was the sinless one. Through the work of Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself, the Jew and the Gentile, the Old Testament saint and the New Testament saint. This speaks of bringing all things under the kingship of Christ. Move on to verse 21. And you that were sometime alienated, that's a hard word for me to say, alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. So he makes a statement of all things being reconciled to God, and now he personalizes it for the Colossians. He reminds them that they were alienated. There's that word again. i got to come up with a new word. Alienated from the family of God and the covenants of promise. They were enemies of God by wicked works. So let's personalize that Lomita for us today, right? You and I, I'm not going to use the A word, were separated. That's better, right? That's good. Separated from the family of God. We were enemies of God. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. Unless you, I don't know if you had any Jews here today. I'm not one. I was a stranger to all the promises made to Abraham. They weren't my promises. They weren't for me. But Christ has made one man out of two in his work on the cross. And now I am entitled to all the rights of sonship of Abraham. I am a part of the covenants of promise. When I look at the Old Testament and the promises made to Abraham and all the, 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 the patriarchs, I say, yes, that is for me today. I'm brought near. I'm no longer an enemy of God. I'm a family member, an adopted son. That's the work of Christ. That's the glory of what Christ has done. He didn't just, we weren't neutral parties, right? We were enemies. Enemies of God, violators, rebels of his law. And he brought us near. He 
paid for our sin. He brought us into the family. And he looked at us and he said, mine, 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 mine. That's the work of Christ. Enemies of God and strangers to the, to the covenants, yet now reconciled to them. It was all of God. He reconciled them to himself through the, the offering of the body of Christ. And we can apply this to us as well. Nothing you or I could do could bring reconciliation with God. Never. Never. We weren't even trying. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You realize that every sin I've ever committed in my life was done after Jesus died on the cross. He died for me. He set his love on me, knowing that this rebel would sin against his holiness. Understand that. Understand our position before Christ. We weren't neutral. We were enemies of God. And we loved it. We hated God. We loved our sin. You know why people revile Christians today? Not for the Christians. Because of Christ. Jesus said, if they hate you, know that they hated me before they hated you. They hate Christ. When we're preaching, and they walk past us, and they ignore us, they hate Christ. When they revile us, they hate Christ. If they attack us, they hate Christ. But you know what? Paul was one of those people on his way to kill Christians the moment Christ appeared to him and called him out. He went from hating Christ to loving Christ. Why? Because God had reconciled all things to himself. Let's go on to verse 22. In the body of his flesh, through death, presents you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. This term, in the body of his flesh through death, is a reference to the growing tide of Gnosticism that was in the early church. One of the earliest battles the church had to face was this heresy of Gnosticism. And in the New Testament, we just see the, the beginnings of it, the, the, the taking root. It actually grew up 100 or 200 years later in the church to be a big problem. So let's do a quick review. I mentioned it before. Gnosticism teaches that man is spirit trapped in the material world. And that anything, even sin that's done in the body is okay because the body is evil, the spirit is good. They believe there was a higher knowledge that only a select few could understand or know or comprehend. They believe that Jesus was not really a man but only appeared to be a man by their reasoning and their logic. If material world is evil and spirit is good, then God could not have taken on a human body because he could not have mixed the divine with the naturally evil flesh. So their, their, their answer to that was, well, he wasn't really a man. He just appeared to be a man. He didn't really die. He just appeared to die. He was just a spirit. The book of 1 John is written in response to this teaching, and Paul warns of it several times in this letter to the Colossians. 
This is why he emphasizes throughout the book that we're reconciled by the body of Jesus Christ, by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's emphasizing these points because people in the church were denying that Jesus had a body. And Paul is saying, no, without the body of Jesus, you're not reconciled to God. Without the blood of Jesus, you're not reconciled to God. A spirit could not die for sins. Only a man could die for sins because by man came sin. So man had to be the offering for sin. We see that in 1 John, in one of the, I think it's chapter 4, John says, if any man you know, says that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh, he's not of God. In other words, he's fighting Gnosticism, because they were saying Christ didn't come in the flesh. He wasn't really human. If Christ were a mere spirit, the reconciliation could not be possible. Hebrews 9.22 declares that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That's as clear as it can be. I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but I mentioned it last week. Rome teaches that their mass is what? A continual sacrifice. A propitiatory sacrifice. But a bloodless one. The same victim is offered in a different manner. In a bloodless manner. But they claim it's propitiatory for sins. Okay? The Bible teaches without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There is no bloodless sacrifice. There is no bloodless offering. There is the one offering of Christ forever. You reject that, you reject Christ himself. There's no other way. After mentioning the body of Christ, he mentions the purpose of the death of Christ, to present them holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. How can those who are sinners alienated from the life of God be holy without blame and unreprovable in the sight of God the Father? The answer is by transferring to us the holiness of the Son. That's people don't understand. Salvation is a great exchange. Our sin, debt, was transferred to Christ. He took it as his own. Understand that. The Father treated the Son like the Son committed all of our sins. And then he transfers to us the righteousness of Christ. So the law, which requires perfection, you and I, if you're saved, we stand perfect before God. You know why? Because we have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ covering us. Not our righteousness, not our goodness. The Father looks at me and he sees the Son. Just like one day on the cross, he looked at the Son and he saw me. Christ was our substitute. So he can now take those who are enemies, he can now take those who are sinful and depraved and enemies of God, and he can bring them near, he can declare us not guilty, because according to our account before God, you know what? I'm a perfect law keeper. Brother Tatsuo is a perfect law keeper. Brother Reuben has perfect obedience to the Father. Carmen is sinless and without blame. You know why? Because we have the righteousness of Christ. That's the glory of what Christ has done for us. He's given us his standing before God. His righteousness. We don't have to do it ourselves. Thank goodness, right? You're not going to believe this about your pastor, but I sin. It's my wife's fault. She... She's the thorn of the flesh. No, I'm just kidding. 
But I sin. Ask her. She has a running tally of all my sins. I sin. I'm not perfect. And if it came down to my righteousness, I would be scared to death to die. Afraid that in that moment, maybe I didn't get all of my sins confessed. Maybe I had an impure thought right before the car accident. Maybe something bad. I, I, maybe I harbored some hatred for my brother I didn't realize I was harboring. I'm so glad it's not left to me because I have the perfect righteousness of Christ. God doesn't count my sins against me. He will never condemn me for my sins. You know why? They've been condemned once and once only in Christ. That's why Romans 3 says that God can be both just and the justifier. Right? He's not unjust to forgive our sins because he's already punished them. Christ was unreprovable and blameless. Therefore, in Christ, we are that way as well. This is speaking of our position in Christ. We are not perfect, yet we are holy because Christ is holy. Understand that, church. Understand that as we pray, we expand our prayer meetings. This is not just a salvation thing, by the way. We're in Christ. The Father treats us like he treats the Son. Right? So he sees us as holy, like the Son is holy. He'll answer our prayers. Yes. We can pray. We can make big, bold requests. Because the Father is pleased to answer the Son. And we are in the Son, therefore he's pleased to answer us. We can trust him because the Son trusts him. Understand that we're not second-rate citizens. The Bible calls us co-heirs with Christ. Yes, he is our Lord. Yes, he is God. Yes, he is always over us. But he's our brother as well. We inherit what he inherits. One verse 23. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. If, as the first word of the next verse... These truths are conditioned upon continuing in the faith. Now, we can go off a couple different ways here. We could say that Christ saved us, but we keep ourselves saved. Logically, that doesn't make a lot of sense. How could sinful, depraved creatures keep themselves righteous? How could all fullness for the church dwell in Christ if it was up to us to keep ourselves righteous and saved? There's a problem there. We can say, well, he's given us salvation conditionally. Right? We're in kind of a testing phase, and if we we fail the test, then he takes back salvation. Okay. First of all, Jesus said, all who come to me, I'll I'll never cast away. Never. Never. We have that. But also, as far as God is concerned, our salvation is done. We're already seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. Ephesians says that we are already, not, not, not just future. As far as God's concerned, it's all done. So this can't be a testing phase. So what does if mean? How can there be a condition upon this if it's by grace through faith? The answer is that not because our works save us or the means by which we stay righteous, but rather righteousness is the fruit of having been saved. 
So what he's saying is Christ has reconciled all things to himself so that he can present us holy and unblameable in the sight of God the Father if we continue. That is, if we have truly received the salvation, if we have truly been reconciled to God. Many claim faith in Christ, but their claim is mental only and does not pierce the heart. Believe me, they crowd my Facebook pages with people who were once in church with me, people who were once my Sunday school teachers, people who were once my friends in the church, and today are living all kinds of sinful lives. Some outright reject Christianity and Christ. For a time, they looked alive. But inside, they were dead. We can dress it up. I, I, I keep going back to this. This is the danger of Christianity. We can dress it up to look really good, even to the point of tricking ourselves into thinking we're saved. Check your heart, Christian. Are you following Christ because you love Christ? What is your claim to salvation? Well, I got baptized. Get saved. Well, I joined the church. Get saved. Well, I prayed a prayer. Get saved. When you stand before God, if he asks you what claim you have on him, your answer should be, my only claim is Christ. And if that's not good enough, I am lost. Because that's my only claim. That's all I can claim. These folks, they go on for a short time and they fall away because there's a reformation of the outside, but there's no regeneration on the inside. There's no new nature and therefore no power over indwelling sin. We will be presented holy and without blame to the Father if we continue. That is, if there is actual conversion, a new nature put within us, if we're truly converted. If we're truly converted, we will remain grounded and settled, and we will never be moved away from the hope of the gospel. If we're saved. So I'm worried. You said, if... Oh no, what if I don't hold up? If you're truly saved, your faith will not diminish. It will grow. <clears throat> your love of righteousness will grow. Since the gospel is the physical death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Gnosticism was a fundamental rejection of the gospel. The application for us is that we must remain faithful to the gospel. So he says... We are presented before God, unreprovable, blameless, if we continue and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Now, Gnosticism is not really a, a big thing today, but there are other things that call us away from the hope of the gospel. The world calls us away from the hope of the gospel. False religions call us away from the hope of the gospel. Watered-down gospel messages call us away from the hope of the gospel. Paul is telling the Colossians that many are being drawn away into the Gnostic heresy, but those who are truly converted will not be moved away from the gospel. We, you and I, must reject every gospel that is not rooted in the merits of Jesus Christ. We must not water it down. We must not compromise. 
There's one true gospel. If we stray from that, we have fundamentally rejected Christ himself. Too many professing Christians, they have a Gnostic Jesus. You watch out for that. A sort of benevolent spirit man living somewhere in the sky. It's what a lot of evangelical Christians believe today. He's not some mystical floating spirit in the sky. You realize that when Jesus united the human and divine natures, that, that was forever. He died in a physical body. He rose in a physical body. Amen. He exists today in heaven in a physical body. Eternally a man, the God-man. If you're Jesus is Gnostic, sort of spirit-like, great spirit in the sky, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. You have fundamentally rejected the Jesus of the Bible. He's not a genie. He's not a mystic. He's not a ghost. He's not good vibes or good karma or good thoughts. He's the God-man. Reject that. Reject the gospel. Reject the gospel. Reject all hope. Too many evangelicals today believe in a concept, but not a person. Jesus is a person, true God and true man, who took upon himself the guilt and the punishment due to us for our sins. Though he himself was without sin, he died physically and physically rose from the dead. To believe in him is not to merely acknowledge true facts about him, it's to identify with him. To put ourselves to death on his cross. To receive from him new and eternal life. Salvation, when applied biblically, is to take on the life of Jesus Christ, full surrender. Say, Pastor, you say that a lot. I'm going to keep saying it. Full surrender. Not Sunday morning only Christianity. I'm going to rage against this till the day I die. I've been in too many churches where it's just a, it's just a cultural thing. We're just, it's, a, it's our country club. It's our hobby. It's what we do. But our lives are not centered on Christ. Full surrender, complete trust, new desires. This is the work of the Holy Spirit as he applies the work of Christ to us. The glory of Christ's work is his ministry of reconciliation. We didn't seek that reconciliation. He gave himself for the forgiveness of our sins. He lived for us the life of perfect obedience and sought to give us the benefits of his holiness. Jesus disarmed death by taking away the strength of sin, which was the law. He did this by obeying it perfectly and then applying it to us. If you have received the righteousness, you have received it with a new nature, and thus the evidence will be your continuing in the faith, never turning from the gospel that you've received. The glory of Christ's work, I'm going to sum it up in three concepts. Reconciliation. Christ reconciled us to God in a real way. I mean, we are his children. New birth. Our old man was depraved, sinful. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We had to be born again. We had to have a new birth of the inner man, not the outer man, the inner man. 
Reconciliation, new birth, a new person, power over sin, power to do righteousness. Hey, if those who are in the flesh cannot please God, those who are in the spirit cannot help but please God. And substitution. He suffered for us. He took our place. We don't, I I know we can't comprehend this. I know we can't, we don't fully understand the holiness of God. You realize that Jesus is eternally God, has existed from eternity past. He has no beginning date. He sat in heaven. For, I, I want to see, there's no way to, to describe it because there was no time, but ages upon ages upon ages. He sat in heaven. He created angels and, and living creatures up there to sing his praises. They cried, Holy, holy, holy. His every whim was served and deservedly so, for he is the holy God. And he, that God, became a man, veiled his glory in flesh. He was hungry like us, tired like us. He lived like us, but perfectly. And then he went to the cross. He who deserved the praises of heaven was mocked, ridiculed, spit on, physically tortured, and killed by his own wicked creatures. And then he turns around and says, I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to give that to you. You realize there was people there at the cross who got saved later? He was literally paying the penalty of what they were doing as they were doing it. Christ is beautiful and glorious, and if we substitute him for anything else, we have substituted for a lesser thing, and we have rejected the great and glorious and beautiful Son of God. You say, you worked up about it. I am worked up about it. Because we need to gaze upon the glory of what Christ has done for us. Then we won't sin. We won't live in sin. <clears throat> we won't hold on to our sins. Say, full surrender, that's hard for me. Is it hard for you? Then gaze upon the glory of what Christ has done. How can we give him anything less than full surrender? How can, I've been saying it all morning in prayer meeting and up here. How can we do anything less but lay our lives on the altar of sacrifice, no strings attached, no demands of God, and say, God, here I am, do as seems good to you. He's wonderful, he's beautiful, he's glorious, and he has all those things for you and for me. And we share in his beauty and his glory when we come to him and receive of his gospel, when we lay down our lives in full surrender, when we, when we reject sin. When we reject sin, we're saying Christ is more beautiful than this sin. Christ is more satisfying than, than this sin. Gaze upon the beauty of our Savior. I promise you, you'll find full surrender, the the least that we could do. The least that we could do. He's glorious, but he's glorious, folks, for you and for me. He offers to share his glory 
with us. Come into my holiness and partake. Come in, give me your sins. I'll partake. He partook of our punishment that we could be glorified with him, undeserving though we are. That's the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. Our chance, just with the Apostle Paul, gaze upon the glory of Christ. As my eyes were on the text, Lord, when I sin, I'm saying that, that sin is more satisfying than you. I don't, I don't want to make that statement. I'm saying that that sin is more glorious than you, and I don't want to make that statement. I want to find my full identity in you. I want to find my full glory in you, in your cross, in your grace, in your gospel. Lord, help me to surrender. Do with me as pleases you, Lord, but, but do something with me. I want to see your glory before I die. I want to see the greatness of your power in this world. I want to stop the mouths of half-hearted Christians around the country who don't believe it can be done, who don't believe there's any miracles left, who don't believe in a supernatural prayer-hearing God. I want to stop their mouths that they too would see the glory of Christ. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Root out any unbelief in me. Root out any sin, any self. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. Bend me. Bend us as a church. We love you, Lord. You're glorious. You're beautiful. May we live as though we believe that every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.